What's going on, Trail and Ultra Runners? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast, a podcast where we discuss all areas of trail and ultra running. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop, and on this episode of the podcast, it is all about the Nolan's 14 line. The Nolan's 14 line is a string of 14 14,000 foot peaks in the heart of the Colorado Rockies in the Sawatch Range, which is somewhere near the Leadville and Buena Vista area. There's been a lot of attention devoted to the line as of late because of all of the athletes that are doing it due to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as two incredible fastest known time performances by Sabrina Stanley and Joey Campanelli. But I realize that a lot of trail and ultra runners and a lot of you listeners out there don't really know what the line is all about. You can't conceptualize, or it's very hard to conceptualize what it's like to run 14 14ers all in a row, under 60 hours, and even how the line came to be in the first place. It seems somewhat random. So, to enlighten us a little bit, I brought on none other than Blake Wood. Blake is an incredibly accomplished ultra runner in his own right. He has finished the Hard Rock 100 22 times out of the 22 times that he has attempted it. He's also won the race before. Blake is also a five loop Barkley finisher, one of the few people on the planet that has finished the Barkley marathons, which is incredible in its own right. But most importantly to this conversation, Blake was one of the conceivers and original finishers of the Nolan's 14 line. And we go through a lot of that history throughout the course of this conversation. I always have a lot of fun with Blake. He has a really unique job in his day life, which I want no part of. And we start out the conversation actually talking about that. And to timestamp this conversation just a little bit, we recorded this before Joey and Sabrina set those fastest known times. So any references to what the records are, are a little bit dated. Sorry for that, guys. This is just how quickly these lines are moving. And maybe between the time that I record this intro and the podcast comes out, those records might even be broken again. Who knows? But here we go. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Blake Wood all about the Nolan's 14 line. Well, here live in my closet, which is, a, which is a, it, it's actually a really good anechoic chamber. You know, with all the clothes <laughs> hanging here and everything. How, how would I, you know, leave it to you to start throwing out the acoustical terms right off the bat? Yeah. <laughs> how was how was your podcast uh, earlier in the week uh, that you mentioned that you were doing? Oh, it was good. That was a lot of fun. Um, I think it went well. Um, I am still waiting to get the uh, recording um, approved by our classification office, just to make oh. sure everything's okay. I mean, you know, I'm I'm a derivative classifier, you know. And, and, uh, obviously I didn't say anything. I don't think I said anything classified. And after I listened to it, when I was out of my run, it sounded good, but I got, I want to get another set of ears on it to make sure, you know, that we all agree it's okay. And, and for the, for the record, what was it about again? It was, um, this is a student at CMC. You know, I've, I've been doing these lectures every semester at Claremont McKenna college. Um, to a, actually to a class that's taught a journalism class that's taught by one of my old high school friends at Claremont, and I grew up in Claremont, so this is hometown, Southern California, 
And I, you know, for five semesters, I've been going and giving a talk every semester about nuclear weapons issues. Okay. You know what, you know, what we have, what everybody else in the world has, things like that. And one of the students from a couple of years ago is a senior this year. And for her senior project, she got a grant from the college to do a podcast series on nuclear issues, nuclear weapons issues and nuclear proliferation and stuff like that. So she asked me, you know, I stayed in touch with her and she asked me to be her first, um, her first interviewee to just kind of lay, you know, lay out the basic stuff about, you know, what we have, you know, why we have nuclear weapons, what they do for us, you know, what other countries, you know, roughly have things like that. And, you know, based on, I mean, cause yeah, it's, I, I spent 20 years as a nuclear weapons designer. That's basically the job I retired from. Well, I can promise you that this this podcast recording will be a lot more light of heart <laughs> than the other one. No doubt. <laughs> now, now that you're retired, I've kind of wondered. We'll talk about Nolan's in a second. Now, promise, now that but we're I'm not like, talking about you know weapons of mass destruction anymore. <laughs> well, I know. I, I kind of wanted to know this because, like, I've always viewed, I've always viewed your like your job or your 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 former job, right? You've been retired for two years now, two or three. Years? Uh, actually, uh, this will be four. Actually, it's four years now. Although I, I actually still go in a few hours a week just to help out with mentoring and review of, of papers and things like that. But I've always, I've always, I've always viewed like your job as knowing, like knowing the capabilities of the worst intended people of the world. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. It's a, no, thank you at all. It, it, it's actually a pretty good gig. <laughs> Oh my god! Well, I don't, I don't, I don't imagine it's a. I mean, I imagine it's a good gig, but just the fact that, like, you know, like the worst stuff out there, like the literally the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, we say that word and it kind of like rolls off of our tongues, like, oh, weapons of mass destruction, but you actually know what they are. Yeah, and who has them? And and it's you know, I mean, you know, it's one of these things where I feel like you know, when I go to work in the morning. You know, it may, I'm making a contribution to world peace. You know, it actually matters if I go to work, you oh, know, and, and it's kind of cool. You know, we write stuff that goes, goes to the president and, and things like that. Well, God bless you, Blake. Jeez, I'm better you than me. I couldn't handle that. <laughs> I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't sleep at night if I had to do something like that. Yeah, I don't know. You get, you get used to it after a while. Okay. Well, here we go. Back to the task at hand, Nolan's. Yeah. It's Nolan season. And um, the reason I wanted to bring you on is because, you know, you were one of the originators of this whole line. And with the COVID-19 pandemic going on, I, I just imagine and I'm starting to hear through the grapevine that there are going to be a lot of attempts this year. And it seems that every year it kind of gets ratcheted up like further and further and further in, in terms of like the interest and the number of people that are that are. Uh, uh, the number of people that are going to do the line and things like that. So I thought it'd be really pertinent right now to get you on the to get you on the horn because it's starting to it's starting to unfold. It's a low snow season, unlike last year, where it was super high snow season and kind of compressed the window a little bit. And you combine that with the COVID nineteen pan- pandemic, and it's just right for a lot of people to uh, to 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 take a crack at the line. So to start out with. There's, there's going to be, I think everybody listening to this podcast, it's a super endemic ultra running podcast, obviously they're going to have some degree of familiarization, familiarization with the line, but 
they probably don't know like how, like how difficult and how arduous and how easily like you could you can screw it up when you're out there especially if you haven't done a lot of recon or you're not good at reading maps even if you've got a Gaia app so let's first like take a little bit of time and like describe the route itself and then maybe where some of the maybe some of the pinch points are on it yeah well the route itself is pretty simple the there isn't a specific route right uh, the concept <laughs> is pretty simple you start at one end of the Sawatch range, which runs roughly from uh, above Buena Vista, Colorado, up to Leadville, Colorado. You start at one end, and there's a string of 14, uh, 14ers, 14,000-foot peaks uh, between the two. And you start at one end, and you get as, as many peaks as you can in 60 hours. And hopefully, uh, you can do the whole thing. And I think since we first accomplished it on our third try in 2001, I think looking at uh, Matt Mahoney's website, I think I counted up something like 34 uh, successful attempts. Um, yeah, 34 finishes in under 60 hours uh, through last season. Um, it's a, I mean, obviously it's incredibly scenic. Uh, we used to actually have in the early days sort of an organized event until the Forest Service told us to knock the hell off because, of course, it's it's all in wilderness area. Um, there was kind of a hiatus for a few years there, and then people sort of started picking it up again. And it's grown in popularity over the last few years, really over about the last five or six years is when sort of it, it started – people started making serious attempts again, I think, in 2014. Um, and, uh, actually, I'm sorry, earlier in 2014, 20, I want to say like 2011 or something. Anyway, people started making serious attempts again a few years after, after we, uh, stopped doing it. Um, it's a, it's a terrific line because it's really, really hard and, you know, right on the edge of being possible so that. In, you know, it shares that, for instance, with the Barkley Marathons, and that's that's not just a coincidence. In fact, Fred Vance, who originally started setting this up, had in mind something very like Barkley, and it's it's kind of right on the edge of possibility for for a good runner. But it has the advantage that you know there's no lottery, there's no entry fee. You can do it whenever you want. Um, you know, if the weather's lousy. You can come back the next weekend when the weather's better and do it. You can try it, you know, a month later if if you do it and, and it doesn't work out. Come back a month later and try it again. Um, and that makes it really attractive um, and and easy to do. And it's sort of become, I think, kind of a test test event, a test case for people that are pretty serious ultra runners and and peak baggers to try and see if they can actually do this in sixty hours. And so we've got these 14 peaks in the Sawatch. It's a pick your own line running from Leadville to the Salida area or the Salida to Leadville area if you want to go south to north. Let's start to get into a little bit of lore. How long is the route and how much elevation gain and elevation loss is there? Yeah, so so the year when, when finally four of us finished it in 2001, um, you know, Mike Tilden, myself, Jim uh, 
uh, Jim Nelson and uh, John Robinson. When we finally finished it, my route on the map, I measured out to be something like 105 miles and 45,000 feet of climb. I think if, you know, we didn't, we didn't have GPS watches then. So that's just taking it off the map. I think uh, just from seeing how my GPS usually matches up with what I measure on a topo map, um, it's perhaps as much as 10% longer than that. Um, so, you know, something over 100 miles, maybe somewhere between <laughs> 105 and maybe 115 miles, depending on the route, and upwards of 45,000, between 45,000 and maybe 55,000 feet of climb. So there's a range of error here, I guess yes. is what you're saying, right? Well, and one of the beautiful things about it is there is no set course. And, right. you know, people kind of, you know, over the years, people have kind of figured out what is probably the most efficient course. But even that has variations because it depends if you're going south or north. It depends what the weather is. You know, there's places where, uh, you know, if if the weather's lousy, you know, you'll probably want to stick to a trail in a section where if the weather's really good, you can go straight down a ridge. Um, there was one of the years we did it, uh, the second year we tried it in 2000, for instance, coming off Yale. Um, I had done that uh, in the other direction the previous year, and it was a really, really good, we, we came down, or, you know, this is on the east east ridge off of Yale that drops you down to the uh, Colorado Trail and then down yep. to the Avalanche uh, Gulch um, trailhead. And I had done that before and it was a really good route. And so I came off the top, but that year it was um, dark and it was freezing rain. And so the rocks were all covered with ice. And that was just a nightmare climbing down that, you know, in the middle of the night on icy rocks and was really, really slow. And that was a year, you know, because of the weather, I would have been much better off taking the much longer trail and running down the highway, which, which is actually how we ended up doing it you know, the, the year we finished, uh, going southbound in 2001. That's the Denise Creek area. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Denny Creek. Yeah. And yeah, Den- Denny Creek. Sorry. Anyway, but, but the other thing that's interesting is because since you're not trying to go from a trailhead to a peak by the most efficient route, necessarily, you're trying to get from peak to peak by the most efficient route. Um, the, the routes people take are often not regular trails or even right. regular climbers routes. Right. Um, and that makes it a little bit different. And and one of the joys of doing this, the first couple of years we were doing it is because we, you know, we had no idea what the most efficient route was. We were using Jerry Roach's book about the 14ers to at least sort of get a sense for it. But the sort of small crowd of us that were trying this thing, uh, you know, that was maybe seven or eight of us, uh, you know, would go up weekends in the summertime try different routes, report back by email to everybody else and say, hey, I went up this ridge on such and such a peak and, you know, it was a really good way to go or, or this was really lousy. Don't do this. I got really bogged down. <laughs> and it, it, it really was the third year before we kind of felt like we sort of knew the best way to go. This whole thing, the origin of all this, which we're going to get into right now, it sounds like a bar bet gone bad. It sounds like a bunch of ultra runners, probably after a hundred miler, they got together, they're all kind of delirious and they've had a couple beers and they're like, oh, I, I bet we could do 14, 14ers all in one shot. Do you think we could? No, there's no way you could do it. Yeah, I bet we could. No, you couldn't. Yeah, we could. And then everybody gets together with their maps 
and tries to actually figure it out. That's what I've got in my head. But how how's how did the reality of the origin of this Nolan 14 actually play out? Well, it's it's actually not too much different from that. Um, uh, Fred Vance, who was sort of the the instigator of this whole thing, um, I uh, first you know encountered him uh, after the you know, I first ran the Barkley marathons in 1997 and put out a report about you know finishing the fun run and Fred wanted to do Barkley the next year and so he started emailing me you know asking me questions about Barkley and how to get in and what the course was like and things like that but in in uh in doing that he sent me uh in February of 1998 this very enigmatic email uh which I actually was able to find on one of my backup drives somewhere where he said uh um he he said he had an idea for a for a you know, incredibly interesting run, and he'd give me two hints. He said in he said uh, in 1992, he says, I posed a question to Jim Nolan, who was not a runner but was a friend of his, and and you know, as an aside comment, Jim Nolan had back in '92 had sort of just finished doing all the Colorado 14ers on it, just hiking. Anyway, he said in 1992, I posed a question to Jim Nolan, who was not a runner. He came back a week later and gave me his answer: 14. And the second hint he gave me was the proper name for the course can be spelled with the letters from Wasatch. And, mm-hmm. and he let me chew on that for, you know, a couple, three months. And then finally in, uh, in June of 1998, kind of came clean of what he was thinking about. And he uh, had been, you know, apparently back in 1992, had sat down with Jim, Jim Nolan and said, you know, how many 14ers do you think you could do in in some amount of time, you know, if you want to try and set some kind of record for doing the most number of 14ers in, in, you know, 48 or 60 hours, what would it be? And Jim had said, well, it's probably, you know, probably the 14, 14ers in the Sawatch range. And so Fred had chewed on that for six years until 1998 and finally decided to try and set this thing up. So in June of that year, uh, by then he was talking to me, he was talking to John McManus, who you know lived up in the area and and uh, knew the area very well, and plans sort of the you know the three of us sort of started throwing around ideas for how you might want to do this. Um, you know, initially Fred said you know let's make, let's do it like sort of in the spirit of Barkley, um, you know, almost impossible, no aid, no fees. Um, he saw it as kind of runners would go do it sort of whenever they wanted, but you know, wanted to try and finish it and had to provide their own aid. This all matured as we went along. Um, Initially, he was calling it the Sawatch 100. And then after a while, that turned into Nolan's 14, mostly because he wasn't sure it was actually 100 miles. Initially, we were thinking it was more like (laughs) 80 miles. Um, And he set the 60-hour time limit basically because he figured 60 hours was about as much as anybody could run and, and stay awake without having to mm. actually make it a multi-day, you know, stage kind of race. So, you know, we kicked that around for a while. Um, you know, by September of 1998, Charlie Thorne had been brought in, uh, you know, as somebody else to kind of kick this idea around with. Um, we decided then that we'd probably start a small group all at the same time. Um, maybe with some aid in a couple places uh, that matured um, over, you know, sort of the September, October timeframe in 1998 until 
Um, Fred had sort of through word of mouth collected a group of maybe initially seven runners that said they were interested in doing it. Um, that morphed further until he finally said, okay, we're going to set the field at 14, you know, to go with Nolan's 14. And he actually, you know, established a sort of an email list and started sending out updates to people every month or so saying, you know, here's, here how, here's how the plans are going. And it sort of gradually got bigger and bigger, um, both in the number of people. Like I said, he had 14 people initially. Um, he finally, you know, appointed John McManus as, as race director. Um, he established an organizing committee that was, you know, myself and Charlie Thorne and Fred and John McManus and Jim Nolan. Um, I think there might have been somebody else in there. He he uh, talked to uh, Fred uh, Fred Pilon, who was the the uh, editor for Ultra Runner magazine at that time. And Fred told, you know, he wanted to get results in when we eventually did it. And Fred said, well, you know, we don't put in, put results in Ultra Running Magazine unless it's an announced race that's on our calendar. And so, you know, and Fred was trying to keep this kind of sub rosa, you know, kind of keep it on the sly. And, but finally he reached an agreement with, with, with Fred Palon that, that, he could put a small little paragraph in in Ultra Running Magazine that just kind of announced we were thinking of doing this and that that would qualify it for having results eventually in it. And so eventually by the time, you know, we set a date, August 27th for 1999, um, by the time that rolled around, uh, we had established aid stations with people working aid stations. Um, We had a, you know, like I said, a list of 14 runners Although I think when it actually came down to it, we only had four of us actually start. Um, we had a lot of people who said they were interested in, and bailed uh, out on it. Uh, initially, you know, the the four of us that have, that started the first year ended up in 1999 ended up being myself, Fred, uh, Gordon Hardman, and Steve Simmons. And and um, he Fred rented a house up there that we all met at. And could you know the aid station people could meet at and and uh, it it became became kind of a real thing. So you know that first year, the real kind of catch thing in the first year in 1999 is we kind of had no idea how long this was going to take. Right. You know, and so we had aid stations, but you know we had to tell the people, you know, because this was also before cell phones, so we had no way of communicating with the aid stations, no radio system or anything. And so, you know, we had to tell the people that were doing the aid stations, you know, several of which were backpacking aid stations, you know, go to this place, wait this long. If nobody shows up by this amount of time, they're not coming so you can leave. And as it turned out, finally, it took us a whole lot longer than we expected. And so, you know, we ended up with Gordon Hardman and me together and Steve and Fred together. And, you know, Gordon and I, um, you know, got, got to one place finally where there was supposed to be an aid station and they'd already left. Okay. We got to the next place, you know, eight hours later and, and couldn't find them and figured they had left also. And so, and, and actually it turned out later on that they hadn't left, but we'd like walk through the forest about 200 meters away from where they were. You know, this was like at 5 AM or something and just didn't see each other. Um, so Gordon and I, uh, going northbound ended up going as far as Harvard and we were on top of Harvard you know, in a snowstorm, not having had any, any aid for about 24 hours at that point and decided, you know, we're going into our second night, you know, and, and we kind of decided, okay, you know, 
maybe it's time to pull the plug on this. So we, we, we walked down to Pine Creek, you know, there's a dirt road in Pine Creek, four wheel drive road. Yep. So we figured, Hey, we'll just go down there and we'll flag the first, you know, four wheel drive guy we see coming up the road and get a ride out to the highway, you know, and, and, and all of our crews were all waiting at Winfield, you know, which was like three peaks farther on. Yep. The Leadville, the yeah, Leadville the Leadville station. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, so Gordon and I get down to this dirt road and we walk and we walk and we walk and it's nine miles out to the highway and we're just not seeing anybody on this road. And it finally turns out the road's closed. There's a gate on the bottom of it. So we get out to the highway and it's, it's dark by then. And we're walking up the highway, you know, at, at, you know, 11 o'clock midnight. And we're trying to thumb a ride, you know, cause from there, you know, it's like 10 miles up the highway to the turnoff from Winfield. And then it's oh, like, yeah. you know, 10 miles up the road to Winfield. And we're thinking, you know, we're going to be walking till morning at least. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, no cell phones or anything. We had these little FRS radios we used to use, which were fine from peak to peak or from peak to mm-hmm. valley, but you know, you couldn't like call somebody right. a range over with them. And and so we're walking along this highway and and we're, you know, cars are going by very occasionally and we're sticking out our thumb and nobody's stopping. And we're thinking, what's wrong? How, you know, and and we, we kind of look and realize, oh, we're, we're kind of wearing our clown clothes, <laughs> you know, we're, 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 you know we're, we're covered with dirt, you know. I I had this multicolored pair of windstop, you know, ripstop nylon pants and a multicolored, you know, windbreaker. And Gordon was in was in tights with some, you know, Eric Clifton-like pattern on it. And we kind of looked at ourselves and said, oh, okay, we look, you know, look like hobos. No wonder nobody, nobody's picking us up. And finally, about midnight, a car goes by and it turns around and it turns out it's Jim Nolan. Oh, gosh. And he had just come by and, and seen us walking along the highway. And, and he said, I saw you guys. And I just thought to myself, huh, kayaker scum. And, <laughs> and he went by us. And then he remembered, he said, yeah, somebody said Blake was wearing a pair of pants that looked something like that. So he turned around and came back and got us and drove us up to Winfield. You know, and of course, our crew had no idea where we were. Oh, you know, gosh. they were waiting for us to come in, but hadn't heard anything you know, for many, many hours. So, so that was the end of the first year. And, <sighs> and I guess, what did we make? We made seven, seven summits that year. Halfway there. Halfway there. How, how much time had y'all spent out on the course in advance of that first year? Like actually getting to know the terrain and the peaks and things like that? Not that much. Um, I had been up a couple of the peaks, mostly though at the northern end that we never got to. So, you know, we were making it up as we were going along. And, and for instance, uh, you know, like Gordon and I were on top of Princeton and all of a sudden our hair started standing on end and the lightning started flashing and, and we just took the first gully down from the summit and just, you know, motored down as fast as we could. And, you know, we hadn't really intended to go that way, but, you know, we had to get off the summit. Yeah. So that's the way we ended up going. And actually that turned out to be actually a pretty good way to go down. Um, you know, dropped us down in the Maxwell Basin. And you know, we had we had several several things like that where we're um, you know, like I said, we were making it up as we went, and and like I said, that re- that resulted in us missing one of the aid stations completely. Um, so the next year, um, we you know Fred sort of set the whole thing up again. Uh, we decided we would go. Uh, you know, I I preferred the northbound direction because I like having the sun at my back most of the day, but Fred wanted to try and change the direction and go southbound. Um, so we did that, and we ended up with uh, that year. We ended up with six of us starting uh, going southbound. Uh, that was, you know, myself, uh, you know, Gordon again, but this time with Matt Mahoney, uh, Eric Robinson, Jim Nolan, and Joe Florio. 
And, you know, Jim and Joe were not in particular shape. They, they quit after, after the first summit, after Massive. Um, but the rest of us kept going. Gordon bailed out fairly early just because he'd had enough at that point. But um, Matt and Eric and I took a pretty good shot at it going southbound. Um, and, you know, I ended up getting as far as Princeton, which was 11 summits. And, and Matt ended up getting to Yale, which was 10 summits. And Eric did Columbia, which is nine summits. And basically, I, I got down off of Princeton um, down to, I guess it's Alpine down there. And, um, you know, it was late afternoon. It was kind of like, you know, I could keep going and get a couple more peaks, but there's not enough, you know, by that time it was like 50 hours. It had already been, it's like, there's, yeah. there's no way that there's enough time to continue. And, and once you start from there, you're kind of committed to go the whole way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, I was feeling pretty good, but, but I couldn't do it in 60 hours and it probably would have been something more like 70 hours and, you know, that, that wasn't appealing. So I, so I pulled the plug at 14, I read 11 summits that year. So fast forward to the year that you finished, which was the next year after that, 2001. Yeah. And that year we had, let's see, we had, uh, looks like, looks like we pretty much had the full contingent of 14 people starting and we went southbound again. Um, but we ended up particularly with a really strong team with myself, uh, Mike Tilden, um, Jim Nelson and John Robinson, you know, different from Eric Robinson, they're cousins, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and of course they're both, uh, uh, cousins with Brian Robinson also. Um, and the four of us kind of stayed together, you know, kind of off and on, you know, sometimes it was pairs of us. Sometimes it was three and one. Sometimes all four of us were together. Sometimes we were all alone. It, it, it kind of flowed, but we were going pretty close to the same pace. So we were never very far apart. And, um, you know, we kept, kept cranking it out. Um, we ended sort of the, the big finale was we ended up, uh, um, heading up Princeton. And I think the three of them were together going up Princeton, going up the Ridge. And I had decided to sleep for 45 minutes to try and settle my stomach. So I was behind them and I went up Maxwell Gulch and could see their lights up on the Ridge, you know, thousands of feet up above me. And, um, you know, and was, was on the FRS radios with them. Um, and actually I take it back. John, it, it was, it was Mike and Jim. John was lost somewhere at that point. Cause I remember at some point they're up on the Ridge, I'm down in Maxwell Basin and John gets on the FRS radio and he says, uh, he says, do you guys know where I am? <laughs> and we said, well, you know, and this, this is like 3 a.m., you know, it's dark. And, and, you know, we say, well, what does it look like around you? And he says, well, I'm on this ridge and it's dark. <laughs> and we said, well, just, just keep going up, <laughs> you know, and, and you're going to hit some peak. You're going to hit some peak somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, which is a little digression here. John Robinson is, is a very talented runner with no sense of direction. And he would just pick a direction and put his head down and go like hell. And, you know, and, and earlier that's, you know, twice earlier that, that same year, one time on uh, going on Oxford, I was following him up Oxford in the middle of our first night and I could see his light out ahead of me, like a quarter mile ahead of me. And so he's, he's going up the ridge to Oxford and he gets to the top and he disappears over the summit. And then I'm climbing up behind him, but he never, he never comes, starts coming down again. You know, I never see his light again. And so I, I get to the summit and I look around and I can see his light down the ridge, the north ridge in the exact 
opposite direction of where he should be going. And so I get him on the FRS radio, say, hey, John, you're going down the wrong ridge. And he says, what? Oh, I am? You know, and so I, he turns around and he waits, you know, and I wait for him and he comes back to the summit and we continue on together. And, and he had some special route that he knew going off Oxford that he was sure was really fast. And we ended up, you know, thrashing through the willows for hours oh, <laughs> trying gosh, to trying to find this route. Oh. And then, then a, a couple peaks later, when we're in the morning of the second day, I'm, I'm going up Harvard. And again, you know, the FRS radio crackles on and it's John. He says, Blake, he says, I, I don't know where I am. And I said, you know, again, I say, well, you know, w- look around. What, you know, he says, well, I'm on this ridge and there's a little peak on, you know, to my right. And there's another peak to my left. And again, I just said, you know, just, just keep going up, John. And, you know, you'll probably get there eventually. <laughs> and, and, and he got there eventually. But anyway, so, so now fast forward to, to the finale. So we're going up Princeton and I eventually, oh, and I, I, I'm going from Maxwell Basin up the side, up just, just the side of Princeton. And all of a sudden I'm in the middle of this mountain goat nursery. And this oh is, gosh. you know, this is like, you know, 1am and, um, you know, in the dark, in my flashlight, you know, and this, this is before led flashlights, you know, I'm carrying one of these, you know, double D cell, mm-hmm. you know, Sears roughneck incandescent <laughs> flashlight, you know, which, which doesn't throw a whole lot of light and the batteries don't last very long. But anyway, you know, I can see, animals, you know, I can hear babies bleeding and mountain goats running in circles around me. And I'm finding the places where they've been bedded down, you know, and there's this whole herd of mountain goats sort of running back and forth all around me. And I can hear them tromping around in the, you know, knocking rocks down in, in the darkness. And so I climb through this and I get up to the ridge and I eventually catch up to, uh, to Mike Tilden and, and Jim Nelson. And then it, and then, and by then John Robinson had caught up with them. So then the four of us are together and we, we go down the other side you know, on the morning of the, now the third day. And, uh, we get down to the aid station. We're kind of, you know, you know, my folks were there providing aid and they had their own people that were providing aid. And, you know, I'm, you know, sitting there eating breakfast and stuff like that. And then Jim Nelson comes down and says, Blake, he says, Mike left me, you know, you know, and I said, well, you know, where's John? He said, John took off after him. (laughs) <laughs> and she said, do you, you know, let's, let's you and me go together, you know, and, and you, you got to know that Jim Nelson and Mike Tilden were, were a pair, you know, they did everything together. You know, yeah. they, they had been climbing together for years and years and running together for years and years and years. Anyway, so, 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 you know, Mike's motoring up Antero, John Robinson's trying to catch him and Jim and I are coming along behind. And, uh, um, eventually, you know, Jim was not was falling off the back. You know, I, I mean, I, I started to get scared about if we had enough time to finish. And so I finally told, you know, we went up to the top of Antero together and I said, I, I said, Jim, I gotta, you know, I gotta start motoring, you know, I gotta go faster than this or else I'm not going to make it. And, and so I dr- drop off Antero and I'm, and I'm looking across till I can see the face of, of Tabawash. And I can see there's John Robinson spread Eagle on this cliff and he chose some, he chose this terrible line up, up Tabawash and he's stuck. I know which one you're talking yeah. about. And he's, he's like trying to go up the gully, but he's on this cliff and he's spread Eagle on this cliff and, and he's, and he can't go up or can't go down. And, and, but you know, and, and he managed to have a, a hand free to talk on the rate, you know, again, on the FRS radio to me and, and he's saying, I'm stuck. I'm saying, I say, sorry, John, I can't help you. <laughs> you're just, you're just going to have to figure this out. And, oh my and so I, I went up a ridge and went past him 
And oh, and, and the funny thing that happened then was Steve Bremner, who was also running that year, got married on top of Princeton. Oh, I remember him telling me that. So Steve and I, we know each other here in Colorado Springs. Yeah. We, we, we've been on the same uh, 501C for a few yeah, years. Yeah, Steve's a good guy. And yeah. and he had intended to get married, you know, on top of Shavano, which would have been the last peak, but he didn't make it that far. So so we're on the little FRS radios, and he's on top of of uh, um, of uh, Princeton with his, you know, now wife. Jim Nolan is doing the marriage ceremony. Oh my god! And, and Jim, so Jim had one of these, you know, draft dodging certificates from back you know, years ago where you'd write off somewhere and they'd send you back something that said, oh yeah, you're, you're now ordained in our church. And so, <laughs> so I have no idea if this was legal or not. I, I guess in Colorado, it probably is. But Jim Nolan was performing the, the wedding. I was on top of uh, Chavano, the last peak. Um, Jim Nelson was on top of uh, Tabawash, one peak back. And we're all on this FRS radios together, you know, for like half an hour listening to this marriage ceremony. And we can just, you know, I can just barely see in the distance, you know, on top of Princeton. I can see, you know, at the, if I squinted, see little figures up there that, you know, and it, it was it was actually pretty cool. And and so I hung around up there as long as I dared, you know, and then started motoring down, you know, and, you know, to get to the finish. And, and you know, and, and Mike Tilden had finished you know, maybe 40 minutes ahead of where, when I finally finished. And, and, uh, uh, I guess, uh, oh, let's see, I guess, uh, John Robinson was next and he had made it up to the top of Chavano in 60 hours, but was over 60 when it got back down. And, uh, Jim Nelson, uh, or actually I think, I think John was just at 60 when he got down to blank cabin and, and, and Jim was on top of Chavano, you know, in 59 hours and, you know, was, several hours after, you know, a couple hours over 60 hours when he finally made it down to blank cabin. But, but we figured that all four of us had finished and, and, uh, you know, what four other, four other people, Ginny LaForm, Eric Robinson, Steve Bremner, and Matt Mahoney had made it as far as Princeton. Um, you know, Dennis Hare made nine peaks and, and Hans Dieter Weissauer made nine or Dennis Hare made 10 peaks. Hans Dieter Weissauer made nine peaks and Steve Simmons and Simon Shadowlight made seven peaks. So it was a pretty successful year. Yeah. So what was the difference in your mind between the first year where the furthest you got was seven peaks to the first year that you had this really successful year where a lot of people finished? Yeah. Actually, one of the biggest differences was we had good weather. Mm -hmm. In 2001, we had pretty good weather the whole time, whereas in 99 and 2000, uh, we had several periods of heavy rain and lightning. And you know, for instance, in 2000, at one point, I think going up, uh, going up Yale, I was pinned down at at Treeline, basically, uh, going into the second night. I think it was pinned down at Treeline um, on this very steep slope where there's this one big tree, and I I could stand in like the one square foot, you know, <laughs> on on the side of this tree was it's like the one square foot that was level, and I had to sit there for you know something on the order of an hour just waiting for the lightning to pass. Oh, wow. And, yeah. and it, was, it was actually pretty entertaining because, uh, you know, I was getting kind of groggy at that point. And I remember sit, standing there, and this is a, you know, a, a pine, you know, and, and all of a sudden I looked at the bark, you know, which is all rough, and, and the mm -hmm. bark was like forming shapes of faces and animals. And 
I just, you know, my mouth dropped open. It was like watching television or something. I just, I just stared at this tree and it was like watching a movie, you know, it was transforming into all these shapes of these interesting shapes and, and faces and animals and scenes and things. So, um, and, and once the lightning passed, I continued on up. <laughs> What's the best hallucination out of any of the folks that finished the first year? Wow. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to be fine on one night in, you know, two nights, it starts to get a little weird for me. But one thing that's important is that actually this course has an advantage on is, is, you know, if you're route finding, you know, something that engages your mind, Mm -hmm. the second night's not so bad. And I don't, you know, I don't get the hallucinations and things like that. But if I get on a trail someplace where I can just, you know, motor along, I mean, or, or walk and, but don't have to think that's when it starts getting really, really hard. And, you know, for, mentally. yeah, mentally hard, you know, I yeah. start, I start getting groggy and sleepy and can't stay awake. Yeah. And I start hallucinating yeah. and seeing things, you know, whereas if I'm mentally engaged, trying to find my way, that doesn't happen. I think that's why the Badwater folks always have the best hallucinations because yeah. <laughs> all they're doing is they're staring at that stupid white line the whole time. And every, like the white line turns into things. Yeah. Right. You know, it turns into like the Michelin man and like gold panners and old friends from high school yep. and animals and stuff like that. But yeah. And I've had plenty of good hallucinations, particularly at Barkley and Hard Rock, you know, the couple times mm-hmm. at Hard Rock I've been out in a second night, you know, not that many at Nolan's because there was always something to keep my mind Right. Occupied. I want to. I want to. I want to paint this picture a little bit more for the listeners in terms of like how hard the route is, um, because it's one that not a lot. It's kind of like Barkley. We've made that analogy a few times, where not a lot of people get to experience it. Although the accessibility is better, there's no, as you mentioned, there's no lottery. You can kind of do it whenever, and blah blah blah. blah. But one of the ways that we can get a fix on how hard it is, is by the people who have attempted it and the people who have and have not finished. Yeah, And you're one of them. I mean, you can start that picture right now. I mean, 2001, that was the year that you did five loops at Barkley, right? Yeah, it was. And 99, the first year we did it, you know, when I only did, when I did seven summits, that was the year that I won hard rock and set the course record. Yeah. So Okay, you want you want to talk about the course record now because no. I know you wanted to bring this piece up. <laughs> just, just, just a a a um, good example of the advances in the last twenty years of ultra running are in nineteen ninety nine at Hard Rock. Like I said, I I I won it and and set the course record. Okay, and and this you know I mean I beat some good people. You know I I ran down Carl Meltzer for instance from forty minutes back. To take the lead. I love that. I love the fact that you're throwing some shade at Carmel. Well, no, we well okay. I'll, I'll tell you what happened with that <laughs> later. But anyway, but um, the time that I that I you know was the course record that year that I set. You know where it is now in the all time list at Hard Rock. Twenty years later, it's I it's, do because I looked at I looked it's it up. It's 117. Oh, that's so unbelievable. 117. Yeah, and you were the course record holder. Every every point. year. Eight to twelve people run faster than my course record from twenty years ago, and that's just insane. Oh, and and the but thing with still, Carl Meltzer is when Carl Meltzer came back two years later, he, he actually dropped out that year after I passed him. When he came back uh-huh. two years later, he lowered the course record by something like almost four hours. Yeah, but still, you were no slouch. You still no, are. I, was, no I mean, I was yeah, I was a pretty good runner. You're a good runner, and but there have been a lot of other 
good runners that have attempted the line. Some of them have been successful and some of them have not. And some of them have taken multiple attempts to actually get through the whole thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that's not, uh, you know, that, that's uh, pretty common. Um, I mean, you know, look at some of the people that have been doing it. You know, I, I mean, the year we finally finished in 2001, you know, I, I finished, you know, I finished five loops of Barkley and Nolan's and hard rock. Jared Campbell came back and did that a few years later. And, you know, I, I don't remember if it took Jared several attempts to do it, but I know Jared has had attempts up there where he did not finish yep, it. And man, Jared yep. is, is amazing. Um, you know, th- there have been some big names that are coming, you know, Anton Krupichka, you know, had his, his sort of infamous attempt where he went out trying to do something like 48 hours on it, you know, when, when, uh, you know, the course record was, was quite a few hours longer than that. Actually, I think he was even trying mm-hmm. to go faster than that. And, and, you know, had, had, you know, a film crew from his sponsor doing it and, you know, coming out and filming him for the whole thing and, and ended up coming up with a three-part, you know, video that they released of, of him cratering, you know, <laughs> sort of halfway through. So the, the current fastest time there is under 48 hours. Yeah. It's, uh, what is it? It's, uh, I want to say... I looked that up. Nichols, Alex Nichols, I yeah. think. Yeah, Alex Alex Nichols, uh, I don't have it written down, but it's like 40, oh, there it is, 46, uh, 46, 41, going northbound, yeah. which is insane, which is insanely fast. That is insanely fast. And he, once again, he lives here in Colorado Springs. I've talked to him about it, you know, multiple times. And he thinks that it's faster, one, because he knows how good he is. He's a great runner, but he's not the best runner out there. Two, he says that, you know, he made some mistakes and had some low points and things like that. What, what You've been there, and you've seen the progression of the sport. What do you think is possible out there? Well, okay, so let's let's sort of look at it this way, okay? When, when I finished it in 2001, it was roughly twice, as, twice my course record at Hard Rock. Okay. Roughly, you know, 60 hours versus 30 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. You know, the course record at Hard Rock now is what, 22 something? Yeah. You know, so that might suggest that, yeah, you could be looking at somebody, you know, going under 45 hours, probably, maybe even lower than that. Um, You know, Iker Carrera, you know, I mean, uh, Alex Nichols bo- broke Iker Carrera's record from, you know, from the year before by about an hour. And man, Iker Carrera is, is, you know, also, uh, among the best of, of the yeah. European runners. So he dropped a lot of time though. Yeah. He, like he got lost on one yeah, section right. he missed his crew on a section or two. Like it was not a, not a clean, not a clean ordeal for him. I think if you got some of the, some of the best people in the world to come out and do it, my gut feeling is you could get down maybe in the 42, 43 hour range. <sighs> Which is kind of insane to imagine. Yeah, it's insane on both uh, on two accounts. It's insane that it's that hard that a hundred hundred in in quotes a hundred miles can take that long for the best runners in the world. And I mean, personally, having been out there and having seen you know a lot of runners out there, it's insane that it could actually go that fast. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's incredible. You, you got you have to pick the pick pretty much the perfect line. You'd need to have good weather, but you'd need right. to be a strong enough runner, you know, that you can run most, you know, a whole bunch of the uphills that, you know, mere mortals like myself, 
you know, can just power hike is the, is the best we can do on that. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I've not run at any of the uphills there. Um, let's get down to brass tacks on the line itself. Are there one or two or three like critical pieces of the whole route that are either inordinately difficult or hard to navigate or even like insanely, I know the whole line's beautiful, but there's anything that like sticks out to you in terms of what are the critical pieces of it? Well, some of the, let's start with some of my favorite pieces of it. Yeah. Um, one of them is, is uh, particularly when you're going southbound is going straight up to the top of Elbert. Um, you know, after you come off massive, you can you can get over to the uh, it's the West Ridge. I mean, you know, it's sort of a ridge. It's not much of a ridge f- up Albert, and that's just just you know several thousand feet just straight up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, but it's not so steep you can't you can't hike up it. You know, I mean, it's not it's not rock climbing, but it's just a amazing grind that doesn't let up, and it's and it's pretty much a consistent um, grade all the way up, and it drops you right at the summit, and that's pretty cool. I think that's your favorite part because it's early in the yes. north to south line. <laughs> and you're also and you're feeling still in good. a good mood because that's peak two, just for people just who for are peak, not yeah. that familiar with the line. That's peak two, but that's my theory. So keep going. What okay. else is your favorite so, part? So there, there's a couple others that I really like. I really like Princeton, um, again, because it's uh, from either direction, it's a long way up. Yeah, it's so big. And it, it's really big and it stands out by itself. You know, that, that, uh, particularly on the South side, you know, you're running like 10 miles on the Colorado trail to get over to where Mm -hmm. you even start climbing. Um, and, and it's beautiful. Um, and it's such an iconic peak that, you know, you can, you can see, you know, it's got a, it's got a good sharp summit. Um, probably the best, actually the best sharp summit is probably Missouri or uh, Huron, which are both pretty sharp, pretty small summits. Um, yeah. And and that's got some advantages and some attractions to it as well. So as far as the harder parts of the course, of course, that depends some on, again, what time of day you reach things and what the weather is and all that. But but there's a couple in particular that stand out. Um, the route uh, off of Missouri when you're going southbound or or, or up Missouri oh, when you're going northbound, you're talking you can about. go on the ridge oh. and there's a climber's route on the ridge, which I've never done. But, you know, a bunch of people try it every year, you know, the years that I was doing it and, and they all said it was a pretty difficult class four ascent there. And by that time I was, I always figured, you know, by that, by that time I'm tired enough that I don't want to try and do something that's dangerous. Um, right next to it though, there's a very nice chute that comes down from the, basically drops off almost from the summit, uh, down. If you're, you'd be going down it if you were going southbound and, the the year we finished, I tried that sight unseen. You know, I was I was on the summit talking to people on the FRS radio, and they said, "Hey, there's this great gully. You know, you just walk down like 20 feet down the, you know, down the North Ridge and look for a red spot on the rocks, and start down." And so I walked 20 feet down, and and I'm you know, and of course it's in the middle of the night, and I have an incandescent flashlight, so I can't see that it's red, but I just sort of you know, and there's you know, and 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 I say, well, okay, here goes nothing. And I just and, and I started down the chute, you know, as fast as my legs would turn, not knowing what was underneath me, and uh, and it worked oh, out, <laughs> and it turned out to be a really wonderful direct route down. Um, but it was a it was a little bit of a you know leap into the darkness 
into the unknown that that took a little bit of a uh, little bit of faith in what people were telling me there. Um, as far as other hard parts, though, the uh, the traverse across from Harvard to Columbia. Okay, yeah. there is a route on the ridge that's again a class four route that I don't know that anybody normally tries to do, but you know if you drop down a ways. You know, you can either drop down like to 12,800 feet and go across this boulder field, or you can drop another thousand feet below that and, and go on the meadows. Um, the boulder field, if you're good on boulders, the boulder field is a blast because the boulders are big enough that they don't move. So you can get up ahead right. of steam as much as your lungs will withstand and basically run from, you know, jump from boulder to boulder. And as long as you keep moving, as long as you keep your momentum up, you can just kind of like, like it's like a monkey swinging from vines through the forest. You just leap from <laughs> boulder to boulder, you know, take a couple steps and jump and you get to the next one. You take a couple more steps and jump and you get to the one after that. And if you stop, you're, you know, then you're climbing over each boulder laboriously, one boulder at a time, and then it's really slow. But if you can keep up that head of steam, it's fast and it's a blast. That's also if it's, if dry, it's dry too. Yeah. If it's wet, that's a Oh yeah. Pain. Yeah. That, uh, the first year we did it when Gordon and I were coming off of Columbia, it had been raining and, you know, we were doing the crab walk basically down the boulder field yeah. because it was so slow. Um, you know, but, but in any case, you know, the, the good, you know, the, the, the uh, rule you ought to follow is you always climb the rocks and descend the scree. Cause if you do it in the other direction, you know, it's, it's terrible both ways. So climb the rocks and descend the scree. There's still some areas where you have to descend the rocks and climb a little bit of scree. I mean, you can't like completely avoid all of that. There's going to be some of it in one direction. Yeah, but if other. you have a choice, you know, and I learned that yeah. the hard way from doing it the hard way a couple different times up there. Um, anyway, I think uh, as far as difficult sections, those are the only, the, the, those are the only ones that really stand out to me. It isn't yeah. a really hard line, you know? I mean, there's you can do this and not do anything harder than class two, okay? Right. And, if you, and if you try and do, you know, take some of the trickier ways, it might be class three, you know, you don't have to go the class four routes that sometimes people take. But you're always, not always, but you're almost always above 10,000 feet. Yes. Like you only drop below 10,000 feet at the La Plata trailhead and then in between... And Taro in Princeton? Uh, I'd have to look at a map, but that sounds about right. It's very high. And, and, and not only high, but a, but a very large portion of it is above timberline. So right. that's one of the things that makes the weather so important. Because if, you know, if, right. if you're getting electrical storms, you know, it's, it, it would be suicide to go over the tops of some of those peaks. Yeah. And anybody who's be, ever been on a 14 or in a lightning storm knows how how precarious that situation yeah be. i've and i've done that um in, in fact the the year after we finished you know i i didn't need to do it the next year so i took a bunch of high school kids in, including one of my daughters up to do an aid station for nolan's when everybody else was trying to do it in in 2002 and we uh you know while we were waiting for everybody to get up you know we all hiked up to the top of harvard and, you know, we're sitting on top and, you know, there were puffy clouds actually pretty much in the distance, pretty far away. And all of a sudden I look over at my daughter and her hair 
her long blonde hair is is basically standing on end, you know, and, and we hear this crackling noise and I'm saying, Does some, you know, is somebody like crinkling cellophane or something? And then we look at my daughter and her hair is standing up and we all jumped to our feet and just started running like hell down as fast as we could and, you know, yeah. got down, a, a, you know, a couple hundred feet before it started hailing and the lightning started hitting. And it didn't even look that close. You know, I mean, it was just yeah. a nice day with puffy clouds off in the distance. So, man, it can change in in a very short amount of time. And, you know, if, if you're not familiar with that kind of weather, boy, you sure ought to be before trying something like Nolan's. Yeah, that that sensation of having the electricity move in, and it's I, the only way that I can describe it is just eerie. Yeah. Like, it's it's almost as if a sixth or seventh sense starts going off in your yeah. body, and you can't really describe it. And, you know, it. Now, now that I'm, you know, old and chicken. I mean, you know, my wife and I still go out and climb 14ers and, and we're a little more careful now at 60 than, than we were at 40, you know, when I was doing Nolan's. Oh, man. Okay. You, you mentioned this one aspect kind of from the onset that I think is going to be important for, for the people who are going to do it this year and also in future years is you guys started out in in it, it started to become a race, like an actual authentic race with maybe a start line and a finish line. The results were published in, in, in ultra running magazine, but at a certain part, at a certain point in time, that guy at the kibosh. Yeah, that was the, the fifth year we started doing it, which would have been 2003. Um, basically the forest service called up Fred and said, Hey, you know, we, we see, you know, that you guys are planning this organized race, you know, through the wilderness areas and we just want to tell you, knock it the hell off. And, you know, Fred said, well, no, no, it's just a, you know, just a group of us that are going out for a hike together and yeah. all. And they said, no, we, we've seen your website, you know, that talks about aid stations <laughs> and T-shirts and records. And it looks like an organized event to us. You know, we'll be there the morning you said you were going to start and we'll write tickets to anybody who shows up. Oh, wow. And so, you know, we, end, you know, I mean, obviously we didn't didn't do it that year, although people still went out and just did it on their own individually, you know, not, not that weekend, but other weekends yeah, yeah. in August, which is typically, you know, when, when we would do this. And, and that was kind of the end of it. Like I said, from, you know, after, uh, after that year, uh, that was 2003, it was really, uh, gosh, it was probably about 2011, before somebody actually made a serious enough attempt to have done a lot of summits. And that's when Eric Lee went up and actually got nine summits in 2011. So, you know, between, you know, between 2003 and 2011, it was kind of uh, quiescent. Nobody, you know, people went up occasionally and reported they'd done a couple summits or three summits or something like that, but nobody took any really serious shots at it. But the no-no or the thing that the Forest Service had the biggest issue with was the fact that it was a quote-unquote organized yes, event. Yes, exactly. And, you know, there's obviously uh, – there's no rule that says you can't go up and try and do this just on your own. But, you know, the Forest Service, you know, you're not allowed to have organized events in wilderness areas. And that's obviously been a problem for a lot of other races, you know, like Western states when they made the – what, the granite – Peaks Wilderness or something, mm -hmm. Grant Chief Grant Wilderness. Chief Wilderness. Yep. You know, they had to get a special dispensation from the government to be able to continue to hold Western states. And we've faced the same thing in Hard Rock. 
where there are some right. wilderness areas that are going in on the Hard Rock course, and and we managed to get the local uh, the, uh, the local uh, representative to write something into the legislation that said we could continue to hold Hard Rock. So, th- th- so this is you know this is an issue, but as long as people just go up on their own and do it in you know ones and twos and threes, no problem. Yeah, and I think the the crux of it is is going to be what constitutes an organized event, like what level of organization meet that meets a certain threshold is going to trip all of these negative things from happening. Is it a website like in your case, right? Website t-shirts that are on, is it somebody filming it? Is it promoting it through social media? Like all of those things are so nebulous right now that, and I don't think we know. Yeah. I don't think we know the answer to that in the forest service, the way they change their management structure seemingly every few years where a new ranger kind of like will rotate in. They have a different interpretation of that. Yeah. And it will depend a lot on on who is actually in charge there and how they choose to interpret the rules. You know, uh, the same thing has happened with, you know, rim to rim in the Grand Canyon. You know, at, mm-hmm. at one time there were people organizing double crossing races and the Park Service finally put the kibosh on it. Are you... Are you are you worried or have any concern that that might happen to this route that the Forest Service kind of comes in and says, "Yeah, we're going to start policing this." I don't, irrespective of how they could actually do yeah, it or not. I'm not but. worried about that because, um, you know, they're they are, you know, recreation is important to them. I mean, you know, part of their charter is to encourage recreational use of you know America's public lands, and um, I don't think that they, I don't think they would feel even that they can be in a position of trying to say, okay, you're okay because you're going out to hike, to climb a 14er and you're not okay because you're going to go out and try and run a bunch of 14ers all at once. You know, that's just yeah. too fine a line to try and draw. Yeah. I think if anything, <clears throat> something, the thing that tips the scales or might tip the scales would be just the, any media surrounding or people out there with drones or something like that yeah yeah. i I could see that pretty quickly getting to be something that the forest service would say no you can't do that or retroactively you know because they're not going to know when it's out there they'll see it and then they'll start hunting down whoever actually put the social media i I, I don't know what they could do at that point i don't don't know if you you know i'm not sure if you need on public lands like that I know in some places, if you're going to like film something for commercial purposes, you actually need some kind of a permit to do that. Okay, I'm pretty sure in Forest Service land you do, or in it, wilderness. Yeah, so so that would be a way for them to, uh, you know, put some kind of a limit on it. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're out there with your cell phone, you know, taking movies while you're doing it, you know, that's obviously perfectly allowed. Yeah. If you're out there with a film crew who's going to various places and, you know, and drones and things like that, I could easily see that being something the Forest Service would say no to. Yeah. There's this other aspect that a lot of it is off trail. And personally, I'm kind of conflicted about this. So, I mean, in an effort of full disclosure, like I've done the route, I'm planning on doing the route this year. I haven't done the whole route. I've done 12 out of the 14. I'm planning on doing it this year. I've been out there a lot various capacities and each and every time I go out there, I kind of struggle because I know 
there are areas that are on trail on standard, you know, standard routes up and down the peaks, but then there are also a lot of areas that are not on the trail. And I also know as a kind of a trail builder here in Colorado Springs, it irritates the bejesus out of me when I go and I build and maintain a trail and I go back two weeks later and there's a bunch of switchbacks yeah. cut on the trail. And I try to juxtapose that with, oh, I'm going to go up, you know, this peak and I'm going to cut all the switchbacks. It is a different landscape, but it seems like so hypocritical. And I'm like, do you wrestle with that at all? Or do you have any opinion? I, on I it? do wrestle with it some, I'm, I mean, you know, from, from, you know, I, I learned from backpacking with my father, you know, when I was in junior high school that, uh, you know, cutting switchbacks is just ingrained into me. That's just something you don't do. Yeah. You know, that's just right, like the worst, right. you know, that's right up there with littering. It's, it's just, you know, right. just something that is totally inexcusable. And so, you know, where there is a trail, um, yeah, people ought to use the trail and there's no excuse for cutting the switchbacks, trying to, trying to speed up, you know, your ascent or descent. Where there isn't a trail, you know, of course, I mean, there's climbing routes on all these peaks, you know, and, you know, Jerry Roach's right. book lists probably half a dozen routes on every single one of these peaks. Um, some of them are, are, have become pretty well beaten in, you know, where there's a fair amount of damage, uh, you know, that's been done on a scree slope or something like that. Um, you know, this, in a sense, Nolan's, uh, because we're going from peak to peak rather than from trailhead to peak, is de facto putting in some new routes that weren't there before. And now that we have, you know, now that it's becoming popular and getting to be a thing that that people are, are doing, yeah, some of those I expect are, are actually getting to form kind of a groove in there. And I'm I'm conflicted on that. Um, I don't come down strongly one way or the other. Um, I do come down strongly, as I said, on the, you know, if there's a trail and you're going that way, you ought to use the trail. But if you're, if you're taking some other ridge that doesn't have an established route on it, I don't know. You know, I hate to, I hate, I hate to see damage done to the meadows and the tundra up there, you know, but but I think you ought to be able to to pick a route and go up it. Yeah, it's tricky because, like you said, it is uh, you do you do have to take ridge lines and take lines that have not existed before. And even when I've you know my short experience out there, which has been you know five or six years now, I've seen trails getting worn. In yeah. Well, I mean, you, you see that at Hard Rock, you know, particularly on yeah. on Grant yeah. Swamp Pass. Yeah. You know, on yeah, yeah, yeah. on uh, on the the north side of Grant Swamp Pass. You know, when I look at photos that I took when I first started running Hard Rock back in '94, you know, there was there was nothing to be seen there. It was just a just a scree slope, you know, with maybe the slightest yeah. little trace down it. And now, you know, you can't miss it. I mean, you know, there there's a yeah. big wide scar going down it from basically Hard Rockers from you know 25 yeah. years of Hard Rockers. Does, does the is that Forest Service that manages it uh, right there? I don't remember if it's Forest Service or BLM. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty. No, I was gonna. I was gonna ask. Yeah, you. I, I, I think that's Forest Service, but I don't know for certain. Do they come down on you guys? No. At all? Um, well, I mean, we we have a pretty good relationship at Hard Rock. You know, this yeah. is you know going a little afield here, but we have a good good relationship with the permitting agencies at Hard Rock, and and we work closely with them and. 
you know, take their advice on various things. And, uh, you know, the issue of how much damage is done by the number of people um, is one that we spent a lot of time discussing with them. Yeah. 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 As you guys have to do every year. Okay, Blake. So I'm going to do this in a few weeks. It's probably going to be now that I'm thinking about it between the time we record this and the time it comes out. Excellent. So maybe I'll, I'll record. Yeah. Maybe I'll record the outro and give the synopsis of, of what actually went down, but I'm going to do this in a, in, in, a, in a few weeks. And so from a completely selfish point of view, what advice do you have for me to get the freaking thing done in 60 hours? Pick your weather carefully. Okay. And, you know, I mean, you're in Colorado Springs, so you're close enough that, you know, you can, you can change plans if you need to. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like you're flying in from the East Coast and, you know, this is your one shot to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you're planning on doing it and it looks like it's going to be thunderstorms all weekend long, I wouldn't bother. <laughs> just, just stay, stay home. home you know and and you know but if you get one of those one of those window you know i mean you can always get thunderstorms pretty much any day of the year any day of yeah. the summer up there but you know but it goes in cycles you know and as you know from various years at hard rock you know some some years it's almost entirely dry some years people just get pounded you you don't want to yeah. be up there in one of the weekends when you're going to get pounded the tricky thing about that though is you look at the weather and there's always a 30 or 40% chance of thunderstorms. No matter how you like you look, there's some there's some days where it's like 100%. Okay, I'm going to avoid those. But there's this there's this range of what's going to be I was going to use the word ideal, but that's not the right word. There's this range of like what's going to be better versus worse and it's anywhere between if you just look at a standard weather forecast, 20% and 45 or 50% chance of thunderstorms. And that I just kind of like wrestle with. It's like, ah, do I wait a day and like, you know, improve my odds or what? It's not as clear cut as just like look for the good weather because there really isn't any perfect yeah. weather. There's never going to well, be. Well, and, and you need to be, um, you know, you're experienced enough climbing, you know, climbing Colorado peaks, obviously, Jason, that that uh, you probably have a pretty good sense for how much risk you're taking climbing yeah. into a thunderstorm. And, you know, there have been, I mean, a bunch of times, you know, the years I was doing it, the three years that I, you know, was attempting it or finishing it, um, you know, every single one of those years, at some point or another, I was climbing up a peak, you know, that was getting pounded by lightning and thinking, okay, hopefully it'll be gone by the time I get up there. And, yeah. and you know, and in, in a lot of cases, that turned out to be the case. You know, I mentioned the one time I got pinned down up there for an hour at Timberline, but there were a bunch of other times like going up La Plata might've been the year we finished. Um, you know, I was climbing, climbing up and climbing up and climbing up and seeing the top just get nailed and thinking, well, you know, in maybe in, you know, an hour, two hour time when I'm actually up there, maybe it will have blown over. And it turns out it did. So, you know, but there's a fine line there, you know, as, as you well know, it's easy to fool yourself to convince yourself that it's going to get better and it's going to get better and it's going to get better. And suddenly, you know, you're in mortal danger. So, so you have to have a pretty, you know, pay attention to that. Well, in 90% of the time while you're out there, the weather pattern is pretty predictable. It's the 10% of the time that it's not 
And that's when that's where people, I think, make the most mistakes because they can read it and you can see everything for the most part because you're above tree line and you're going so slowly that you can look up at the ridges and look up at the peaks and go, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, hour and a half, I'm going to be up there and all this should move off because I can see blue skies behind there and things like that. Most of the time, if you've been out there enough, you can read that. But there's that like 10 or 20% of the time that it just like it moves, like the weather moves a different way, like completely different way than it normally does, or it doesn't move as fast. That's where I think people get. Well, so, so the other thing to remember again is that, you know, this isn't hard rock where, you know, if, if you pull the plug, you might not ever get a chance to run it again. Okay. I mean, you know, (laughs) if it, if it gets dangerous, you know, and you, and you try and wait it out and it doesn't look like you're going to, you know, like you're, you're going to be waiting too long. You know, it's not going to get better. You can pull the plug and come back next weekend. That's right. I can do that. <laughs> I can go and sleep so, in so my be, bed. Be, right. <laughs> drive two yeah. hours back home, sleep in my bed and come back but, the well, next weekend. Well, don't, don't tell yourself that because, you know, because yeah, I, I, then you might <laughs> give up prematurely, you know. Um, I mean, that, that's not a good excuse because you're tired, <laughs> but, but if yeah. you're in mortal danger, yeah. So Blake, what you're telling me is, is be tough, but be careful, but don't put yourself in mortal. Yeah. Be, be tough and be careful. That's good. Good advice. Sage advice, Blake. I appreciate it. All right, man, we're going to let you go. I appreciate your time, Blake. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks for what you do for the alternative community, specifically with hard rock and the races that you run, uh, in Los Alamos. You want to give a quick plug for the races that obviously didn't happen this year, but yeah, well, our big local race uh, here is, is the Jemez mountain trail runs. We got a 50 mile, 50 K and a 15 mile. And it's one of the toughest courses, you know, that you're going to find for those distances. Um, it's beautiful. It's at a great place of the calendar. It's Memorial Day weekend. So it's just the right amount of time before Western states or hard rock to, you know, not burn you up, but, a, but be in a good way to test your fitness. So anyway, I would, I would recommend that to anybody. And I would recommend that as well. I've done it several years. I've had my athletes do it. It is an awesome race and it's got the perfect vibe where you start and end at the Posse yeah. Shack, which if no, if nothing else, that's just an awesome name for a place to start yes. and end. Which is only a mile from my house. So I can just walk, walk to the start, you know, and then walk home afterwards. And uh, yeah. It's awesome. And, you know, we have, we have, you know, a great New Mexico food at the end and, coolers full of beer and, and it's a, it's, you know, everybody hangs around all day long and waits for everybody else to finish. It's a, and there's like 600 in the whole, in in the three races, there's like 600, you know, the two long races have maybe 150 people in them. And if you know Blake well enough, he might give you some beer that he brews That's right. himself. I usually come with a, with a case of homebrew for my special friends at the finish line. (laughs) There you go. You just got a bunch of new friends from people listening to this podcast, Blake. All right, man. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon, man. I hope to see you on the trail soon. All right. And there you have it. Much thanks to Blake Wood for illuminating everything about the history of the Nolan's 14 line and what it is all about. Many of you have reached out to me via social media on my personal attempts at the Nolan's 14 line. And while it is true, I've been unsuccessful in two attempts to date at the line. I am committed to getting it done this summer and I'm going to go back out there again. 
with my wife and my dog as my trusty crewmates sometime during the end of August, early September, weather window permitting, and quite frankly, just get the friggin' thing done. So I appreciate everybody who's reached out to me on that. If you have not had the chance to give this podcast a rating or a review on Apple Podcast, go ahead, skip on over there, give the podcast a review. It means a lot to me personally and helps out the podcast a lot. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.